the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to Serve to Lead. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by giving us a high rating on iTunes. With us today is a highly respected public intellectual, acclaimed historian, and biographer, Andrew Roberts. Andrew Roberts is at the top tier of narrative historians of our time, along with the like of Robert Caro, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and David McCullough. His most recent book is Leadership in War, Essential Lessons from Those Who Made History. This follows on his other recent book, Churchill Walking with Destiny. The golden threads running through Andrew Roberts' prodigious output are leadership in general and Winston Churchill in particular. Andrew Roberts, it's a delight to welcome you today. Thank you very much indeed. It's a great uh, honor to be on your show. Andrew Roberts, you open your latest book, Leadership in War, with a question. How can 100 people be led by a single person? Please tell us a bit about your take on this question, including how your own thoughts may have evolved since it was first posed to you as a student four decades ago. Yes, that's right. It was in my um, exam paper for Cambridge University that that question was first posed. And the fact is, I can't even remember whether I answered that question on the uh, <laughs> on the paper. But it is, it's been interesting me really ever since. How can one person lead 100 people? But then also, of course, 1,000 in a, in a uh, battalion or 10,000 in a division. or, or uh, And those are just, of course, uh, military aspects or millions of people, or in the case of India or China, over a billion people. And um, it strikes me that uh, really the... 15 or 16 books that I've written ultimately all come down to trying to answer that, uh, that central question. What changes are you seeing in leadership in the 21st century, our digital hyper-connected moment, or do you see more continuities with the past? That's a very good question. I think, uh, of course, you have both. You have the need still to be able to inspire people, to be able to um, get them to uh, do things they wouldn't otherwise um, to, as we see at the moment, of course, in the course of this coronavirus, make sacrifices. Um, but at the same time, as you mentioned, there are new um, aspects to it, or at least new ways in which it is carried out. Um, the, the, the Twitter, just in itself, didn't exist um, in the last century. And uh, now it's a way that people are able to uh, go beyond the media and talk directly to followers, as your president, of course, is a prime example of, um, of showing. Um, and this can be used for good and for ill, uh, just as uh, in earlier centuries people have used every single new form of communication to try to uh, increase political power and and those have been used for good and for ill. One can think about radio, for example, which was used superbly by Winston Churchill during the Second World War, but also in the most profoundly sinister way by Adolf Hitler, exactly the same medium. Your new book, Leadership at War, comprises a series of essays about historic leaders ranging from Napoleon to Hitler to Churchill to Margaret Thatcher. 
Are the lessons you glean limited to statecraft in the military, or do they have broader application, for example, to business or not-for-profit organizations? I would like to try to um, differentiate the two, because, of course, in wartime, you're able to do all sorts of things that you just simply can't do in peace, primarily control the media, of course. Um, and so when there is a, um, a, a moment in... Uh, August 1942, for example, when Winston Churchill was speaking to Joseph Stalin in Moscow and was able to make the uh, joke that um, the truth is so important in wartime that it needs to be protected by a bodyguard of lies. <laughs> and that's something you can do in wartime, but if he tried to pull that kind of thing off in peacetime, he wouldn't be able to, although, of course, Stalin uh, most certainly could. So you do have uh, huge differences, I think, between um, being a wartime leader and a CEO, for example, or, or somebody running a charity. But they are primarily ones of, um, of um, news control. Beyond that, when it comes to oratory or the uh, ability to get people to do things, as I mentioned earlier, that they wouldn't do otherwise, to go out of themselves, to go beyond their normal capabilities... I think those, um, there are aspects of leadership that, um, that do translate from the military into the non-military. Well, let's turn to Winston Churchill. Your recent book is widely recognized as the best one-volume rendering of his extraordinary life. I joined many, many others as a great admirer of the book. In fact, I have three editions, the beautiful hardcover, which is near me, <laughs> the well-rendered Kindle edition, and the audible recording, which has fine voice work. Well, you're Let the me... man who pays my mortgage. Thank you very <laughs> much indeed. It's good to meet you at last. <laughs> well, Andrew Roberts, let me pose a question that I trust will not be received as impertinent in what you all may regard at times as the American tradition. Uh, why in the year 2020 should anyone take an interest in Winston Churchill? He's an increasingly distant figure, so much so that at least one poll purported to show that many young people in the UK perceived him to be a fictional creation. Yes, 20% of, uh, of teenagers think that he's a, uh, he's a fictional character. Um, that's actually nothing to do with him, fortunately. It's entirely to do with our um, education system, which has been really since the 1960s knocking our heroes, trying to drag them down, denying they are even heroes, denying that they exist. And so... Um, that's something that we can actually turn around very easily. Uh, all it needs is political will to do it. But as far as whether or not he's still a, uh, um, an important figure, I think there is, can be absolutely no doubt about that, because he did in so many ways personify leadership, um, which, as we mentioned earlier, is something that is still required in the 21st century as much as it has been in any other previous centuries. Um, perhaps right now, in, in, our, in our time with the coronavirus, needed more than at any other time in our lives. So it's a good thing to look back to the absolute paradigm of uh, leadership and, in Churchill's case, the paragon of leadership. And if I may just... Um, I, I came across a, a quotation that he, from a speech that he gave um, in March 1944 to the, to the Royal College of Physicians. And... Um, and I just wonder whether or not I could give you this one sentence, because it's uh, something I think that can, two sentences, that, uh, that I think has got a lot to say for our present um, day. 
Wonderful. When he said that the, the, is that all right? The discoveries yes, thank of you. healing science. He said the discoveries of healing science must be the inheritance of all. That is clear. Disease must be attacked, whether it occurs in the poorest or the richest man or woman, simply on the ground that it is the enemy. And it must be attacked just in the same way as the fire brigade will give its full assistance to the humblest cottage as readily as to the most important mansion. Mm, beautiful quotation. What prompted that? Uh, was that just the setting he was speaking, or was there something else think, happening? Yes, I think it was the fact that he was talking to the, uh, to the Royal College of Physicians. Although, of course, you know, March 1944, um, just uh, only a couple of months before D-Day, uh, uh, an awful lot of these um, uh, people were were getting ready for um, for triage senses they'd never seen before in their lives. Now, you've got a prime minister in the UK at the moment, Boris Johnson, who is a great admirer and student of Churchill. Will he be someone who will try to rectify this uh, bit of a dereliction, if I might say, of people not viewing him in his full reach or you, is that too much to hope for? You most certainly can say dereliction, yes. No, you're absolutely right, James. I mean, this is something that we've been fighting for for a long time, actually, Churchillians in England. The International Churchill Society in particular has been, um, has been fighting this. There was a point at which Churchill was only taught for 14 seconds uh, in, in one video. It was the only moment in which he was actually on the school curriculum, even though 14 seconds in the whole year of a student's history teaching, even though he is by far the greatest um, Englishman who ever lived. And this is an absolute uh, scandal, in my view, and something that, as I say, we've been banging on about for years, and hopefully now we've got a Prime Minister who's in a position, A, to listen, and B, eventually, when, uh, when he's got some time on his hands, to do something about it. This may be a related question to that one. How would you respond to those who recognize Churchill's impact but view it primarily as retrograde, that is, imperialist, racist, genocidal, defender of an ossified class system, and so on? Well, he was, um, he was an imperialist and colonialist. Of course he was. He uh, was a great supporter and defender of the British Empire. It was for many, um, for most of his life, I think, really, it um, was the most important thing. It was the thing that he believed he was working for more than anything else. Um, however, that is entirely different, of course, from genocidal. In fact, if anything, he was, uh, it was the British Empire that managed to elongate the lives of the native population. We doubled the life expectancy of Indians, for example, in the time that we were um, in control of India. So uh, it, was, um, it, was, it was immensely, brought immense good to, uh, to the native peoples of the empire over the uh, couple of hundred years that, uh, that we had the empire. And Churchill recognized that, and he was proud of it, and, and he thought it was worth dedicating his life to. Let's turn to a general question along these lines, Andrew Roberts. When, you deal with his, when one deals with historical figures, they're, of course, operating in a bit of a different world. And it seems as though many people today attempt to hold historic figures to contemporary, very uh, passing political fashions or standards. Is that accurate, or how do you react yes, to it's it? It's a problem. It's a, it's a great problem. It's a, it's a natural human reaction, of course. One wants to meet 
I don't know, Oliver Cromwell or Abraham Lincoln or George Washington and have a uh, conversation with them and think that they might be uh, <laughs> interested in your, um, in your concerns and, and the troubles of the 21st century, whereas, in fact, uh, the conversation would uh, probably go very, very differently. Um, but the thing that you mentioned, a classic example, of course, is something you mentioned earlier in your last question about race and racism. Um, Winston Churchill was born while Charles Darwin was still alive and while people um, held the view, which we today know to be both uh, absurd and obscene, that there are a hierarchy of races and um, with a white uh, man obviously right at the top um, and going down. And um, uh, that we know scientifically to be untrue, whereas um, he believed, because of the work of... Uh, of people like um, Darwin and Huxley, that it was true. And so trying to evaluate somebody who, uh, who believes something through scientific endeavor um, that we today know through better scientific endeavor not to be the case is, um, is completely unfair, it strikes me. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an obvious um, uh, unfairness against natural law to accuse somebody of something that he had no capacity to be able to um, see differently. The great English writer George Orwell wrote about how British intellectuals often didn't seem to love their own country or they were highly critical of it. How do you think that people ought to love their country? It could be the US, the UK, others while recognizing past activities that today we would condemn or they occur now? Yes, um, it, it shouldn't be difficult, should it? And by the way, although Orwell, in, I think it was The Lion and the Unicorn, wrote that, didn't he, in 1941, mm -hmm. uh, it's still exactly the same today. Uh, during the Brexit debate, we had intellectuals um, primarily, but not entirely on the left, um, saying things about Britain that, um, if they were said by a non-Briton, would be regarded as, as being um, appallingly um, you know, hateful. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but when they, you, you say them about your own country, for some reason it, it, um, doesn't, um, it doesn't strike the same kind of uh, xenophobic uh, um, symbols in the way that it should do. I think that it's not difficult, is it, to... Um, appreciate that uh, there are lots of good football teams, but the one you support is the one you support. I think we do <laughs> quite a lot in, in life. You know, you can love mankind, but of course you're going to prefer your family. Um, I am very excited and proud when I go to other parts of the United Kingdom, but I, I retain a, a love for London, where I live. Why on earth would that be so difficult um, taken to the national sphere? Mm -hmm. Why is that so difficult? Can you put know. yourself in others' minds on this? I, I tell you what, I think it's because very often, and this was what um, George Orwell, I think, also thought, was that sometimes intellectuals can be too clever for their own good, um, that they can prefer ideas to people, that they can become, um, they can become deracinated in a way that, um, that ordinary people just simply won't understand because they're driven by the impulse of um, what they think is logic and reason, but which actually is a, a deep and, and very sinister, in my view, underlying self-hatred.
Do you have optimism of how we may escape, that is we, I'm presuming to say the United States and the United Kingdom, how we might begin to disentangle ourselves from this situation? Um, actually, do you know, funny enough, I do rather. Um, I think that the way in which the whole world, but, um, but also Britain and the United States, um, their, their general populations have responded to this uh, virus. Um, not everybody, of course not, but nonetheless, overall, I think there's been a, a good deal of patriotism and people coming, especially, of course, in the health services, but um, people coming forward to volunteer uh, is a rather moving and, and positive aspect. I, I wonder at the end of this um, whether or not we might be a bit more proud of our country considering quite how many people are, are putting themselves in harm's way with this virus and volunteering for things that... Uh, under normal circumstances, perhaps they wouldn't have. Mm, that's beautifully said. Andrew Roberts, what prompted you to write your magnificent one-volume book on Churchill? Because looking back to when you started it, his life and work are pretty well-tilled ground. <laughs> you can say that again. <laughs> I, uh, this is the 1,010th biography of <laughs> Churchill. And there's literally 1,009 that have already existed. So you can imagine as an historian and biographer, sitting down and thinking, golly, what am I going to be able to tell <laughs> people that 1,009 earlier biographies haven't been able to say? And the answer is that I was tremendously fortunate at the time that I uh, started uh, working on this book in uh, 2014, 2015, because the um, entire great cornucopia of new information was made available uh, to me, completely new sources. Majesty the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. And King George VI met Churchill every Tuesday of the Second World War. They had an audience together at lunchtime at Buckingham Palace. And they'd serve themselves from the sideboard at lunch because nobody else could be present, because the King was trusted by Churchill with all of the great secrets of the Second World War, the nuclear secret, the um, ultra-decrypt which countries were going to be invaded, which ministers were going to be hired and fired, and so on. And so um, you have this great uh, this friendship, genuine friendship. Um, the king refers to Churchill as his friend. He's the only one of his four prime ministers that he ever does that to. He was the only one who he uh, called by his Christian name. And, um, and so that's a wonderful new uh, source, which, as you can imagine, I've mined a lot. But also, at the same stage... Um, I came across some, um, when I was working in the Churchill Archives in Cambridge, I discovered the, uh, the verbatim accounts of the War Cabinet. So uh, we now know what everybody, each individual, said in the, uh, in the War Cabinet. There have been 41 sets of papers that have been deposited at Churchill Archives since the last major biography of Churchill, including the diaries, wartime diaries of his daughter, Mary Soames, the Churchill family were tremendously generous to me and allowed uh, me to use, um, use the love letters of Pamela Harriman for the first time in the Churchill biography. Uh, she had a very active love life. And, um, and also the papers, uh, the diaries of the Soviet ambassador, Ivan Maisky, Soviet ambassador to London, 1932 to 43, um, had been found in, in Moscow and they'd been translated. So this is... There's an awful lot more to say about Churchill. There's virtually something on pretty much every page of my biography that has not appeared in any other 
biography of Churchill before. Given that amazing series of finds that you had access to, are there any remaining sources you're aware of that say in the next 10, 20 years may yet come out about Winston Churchill's life? Um, well, 10 or 20 years, um, maybe not. There, there'll, be a, there'll be a few. I mean, the great thing is, of course, that there's always something in the attic uh, of, of somebody somewhere that will um, be able to uh, be added to the... Um, you, get, you get them the whole time, especially with, sadly, this wartime generation now dying. Um, people go through the attics of their great-grandfather or grandfather and find diaries and letters and correspondence and so on, which... Uh, which um, is always wonderful when that happens. But as far as really top-level important stuff is concerned, I think that we've got most of the um, secret intelligence um, stuff that's now all come out. We've got the royal um, business with regard to, certainly, of course, as I mentioned earlier, the King's Diaries, um, the abdication crisis. Um, Her Majesty the Queen's own diaries. She keeps a daily diary and always has, and so that will be a very useful source for her time with Winston Churchill as um, her first Prime Minister. But those, um, I shouldn't imagine, will be published. Uh, if there's any, uh, I imagine it'll be about 80, 80 or maybe 100 years after her death, so I don't, I don't think any of the us are going to see those, unfortunately. Um, but um, but no, I think we've we've uh, we've got the certainly got the huge vast majority of it. Andrew Roberts, your theme is Churchill's sense of destiny, his extraordinary self-belief. Where did that come from? It was a number of things. Um, the first thing I think was the fact, the sheer sense that he was um, a came from the same family as uh, as the great Duke of Marlborough, arguably Britain's greatest general. And uh, he, he was born in Blenheim Palace, of course, which was built for the first duke. He was... Um, uh, how he had this grand aristocratic name that was connected to saving Britain in the, um, uh, in the War of um, Spanish Succession. So that was part of it. Another part was that his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, was a very successful politician, um, Chancellor of the Exchequer, an immensely important figure, and so he very much wanted to uh, live up to his father's, um, uh, his father's level of success. He went to Harrow School at a time when, um, when patriotism was really part of the curriculum, virtually, and, uh, and made to sing songs about the greatness of uh, Herovians and what they've done for Britain. And so I think that drove his ambition to, uh, to be as uh, impressive as all his sort of former school pupils, and it's a school that goes back to the days of Queen Elizabeth I. So there you have at least three uh, impulses. This may relate to those rituals, because several of the leaders you've studied and written about, including Churchill, Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, Franklin Roosevelt, Charles de Gaulle, these were roughly contemporaries. They were each highly consequential, some positive, some negative. Why did so many consequential leaders emerge from one period? Is this a coincidence? Are there elements in their upbringing and education? How do you explain this? Um, 
Well, uh, actually, the, the book also does have Nelson and Napoleon, who come from a previous generation, of course, and it, they, and it ends with Margaret Thatcher from, from our own time. So they're not all uh, from that period. The period scans 200 years or so, but you're right. Um, it was very much the Second World War period, Stalin rather than Lenin, in fact. And I also talk about George Marshall and uh, Dwight Eisenhower, and this is the classic example of the Times bringing forth the leader. Um, the, the Times in each of those countries being so um, traumatic that leaders were, were thrust forward. Um, sometimes they thrust themselves forward, almost in every case here, certainly with Churchill. Charles de Gaulle with his flight to London in June 1940, the classic example of thrusting himself forward. Others had been thrusting themselves forward for... 30, 40 years beforehand, um, Stalin, of course, uh, was only in his 20s when he robbed the Tiflis State Bank and stole the equivalent of about $40 million. And that was the thing that drew him to the attention of the Bolshevik leaders. So you have this, and uh, Hitler in the First World War, of course, winning the Iron Cross First Class in 1918 was the moment at which he recognized that he was capable of uh, leadership. Um, and there's a moment in each of their lives, and I go into this in some detail in this book, where they recognize in themselves this capacity. Um, and, uh, and so it's a combination of personal um, self-realization and then the opportunity, which, of course, came to, as you mentioned, six of them um, after, the first, after the Second World War broke out. You've written about Churchill and Hitler and compared and contrasted their approaches as well as written about them in many of your books. What was it about those two personalities that prompted them to recognize the other as consequential? Well, actually, funny enough, Hitler didn't recognize Churchill as consequential until, uh, until the war had, in fact, broken out in 1930. Or, or was about to break out at least. In 1932, he had the opportunity of meeting Churchill, and he told Putsi Hanfstegel, his uh, his um, PR man, his sort of communications um, man, that um, he didn't see why he should meet Churchill, who was just an old has-been, and no one was going to hear any more about Churchill. And this of course, was uh, yet another of his very many um, blunders. But... Um, Churchill spotted Hitler, of course, very early on, and uh, and warned about him again and again during the 1930s in uh, ever more portentous tones, and uh, and was ignored um, all the way up, really, until uh, until March 1939, when Hitler invaded the rump of Czechoslovakia, and people suddenly realised that actually Churchill had been right all along, and that these warnings um, that they had uh, that they had laughed at and shouted down on occasion in the House of Commons and ignored um, had all turned out to be uh, correct. What do you view as the source of that kind of insight? Because it clearly went beyond what was data was available at the time. There was something yes. is it in his no, gut or what right. was that? Absolutely. I think it comes down to three things. The first thing was that Churchill was a philo-Semite. He liked Jews. He'd grown up on, um, with Jews, got on holiday with Jews. His father liked Jews. 
um, very unusually for the British aristocracy of the time. He was a Zionist. Um, of course, he'd supported the Balfour Declaration of um, 1917. And so he... Um, he was somebody who liked Jews, and therefore he had an early warning system uh, for Hitler and the Nazis um, and what they were about that was not vouchsafed to many other people in the House of Commons, on either side of the House of Commons in those days, many of whom were anti-Semitic. The second thing was that he was um, an historian, and one of the reasons I'm proud to be an historian is that Winston Churchill was one, and he was able to... Um, to see the threat posed by Hitler and the Nazis in the long continuum of British history, the, uh, the panoply of threats that we've faced um, from Queen Elizabeth I's time with the Spanish Armada uh, through to uh, Napoleon and um, Wilhelm II in the First World War and, and then uh, Adolf Hitler. And, of course, also the threat posed by Louis XIV of France and it was his own great ancestor, as I mentioned earlier, the first Duke of Marlborough, who destroyed that threat. So he saw himself as being part of that great, um, of that great continuum of, of history and, uh, and saw where Hitler was in it. And the third thing was that he recognized um, fanaticism. He'd seen it up close and personal in his own life in um, Islamic fundamentalist um, totalitarian fanaticism, up on the northwest frontier and in the Sudan, and he was—he um, fought against it himself, and he was able to spot it in the Nazis in a way that the other prime ministers of the 1930s, men like Ramsay MacDonald and Stanley Baldwin and Neville Chamberlain, were never able to do because they'd never actually come face to face with fanaticism in the way that Churchill had. There were a number of consequential 20, 20th century leaders, and I'm thinking now particularly of Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt in the United States, who were also deep, deep students and writers of history. How do we recover that, or should we look to it, or what's your overall sense? It seems that, for example, 100 years ago in the United States, there were very serious works of history done by many politicians. Uh, today, that doesn't tend to be the case. Yes, you're right, um, and I think it's one of the uh, one of the sadnesses, and indeed one of the dangers um, about uh, about modern politics is how little um, some politicians look back to the past properly. My sense is that um, that Churchill once again had a phrase for it when he was crossing Westminster Hall to go to a coronation luncheon at the time of the Queen's coronation in June 1953. And a young American um, lad came up to him and asked him for a piece of life advice. <laughs> and Churchill said, study history, study history, for therein lies all the secrets of statecraft. And I, um, I wish that um, all people did, not least because obviously I write history, <laughs> but even if I didn't, I think that it would be a, a very useful thing to have, um, to have leaders who do. I mean, in, in my country at the moment, we do have Boris Johnson, who, as you mentioned earlier, has written a, a, a book about Churchill. It wasn't a biography. It was, a, it was a attempt, really, to get young adults interested in Churchill, to remind them of uh, why Churchill's still important. So I think we, we are very fortunate uh, now to have a prime minister who is interested in history, um, after, frankly, quite a few who haven't been in the slightest bit interested in it. 
Andrew Roberts, Churchill had memorable resilience, to use, I guess, a contemporary term. He famously said, success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Now, his accomplishments are staggering. Yet, so too, many of his mistakes are striking. Some included the loss of many lives, such as at Gallipoli in the First World War or the Norway campaign early in the second and others. What was it in his psychology and temperament that enabled him to come back from those sorts of defeats or setbacks over and over and over again? Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, he made blunder after blunder um, in a way that might actually in modern politics have destroyed him. And, uh, and, and maybe he wouldn't have been around in May 1940 if, uh, if we had the same kind of attitude towards failure and mistakes um, today as we, as we did then. Um, he got the application crisis wrong. He got the um, votes for women wrong. He got, as you mentioned, of course, the uh, Dardanelles catastrophe appallingly badly wrong. Um, the um, gold standard. The, the list is endless, really, of the of the mistakes he made. And the answer to your question, really, I think, is this sense of destiny. I, I subtitled my book um, "Walking with Destiny." as a reference to his phrase of the um, time, the day on which he became Prime Minister on the 10th of May 1940, a terrible day because, of course, um, that was the same day that early that morning that Adolf Hitler had invaded Holland and Belgium and Luxembourg and was shortly afterwards to invade France. And he wrote in the um, last last paragraph of the first volume of his autobiography, his war memoirs, The Gathering Storm, I felt as if I were walking with destiny, and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And so I think the sense of, of destiny was the thing that got him past all of these blunders. That was one thing. Another was that he learned from each of his blunders. Um, all of those mistakes that he made he actually learned from, and, uh, and he didn't make them again. And what he learned from the Dardanelles crisis, which lost, uh, sorry, expedition catastrophe, really, which lost 147,000 killed and wounded, was um, in the First World War, was not to do the same thing in the Second World War, and he always um, allowed himself, ultimately, to be overruled if all three of the chiefs of staff um, disagreed with him on something. So he didn't overrule them in the same way that he had at the time of the Dardanelles. Quick follow-up on the Dardanelles. Did Churchill ever visit Australia or New Zealand? No, no. For, for a man who, as we mentioned earlier, was a great uh, supporter of the empire, in fact, uh, he um, there was a huge area of the empire in Australasia that he never went to. Um it might have been, I mean, it was a, a very, um, he, was, he was a very well-traveled man. He flew uh, or, or in some way traveled 110,000 miles in the course of the Second World War. But um, it's, uh, it, was, it was a really very, very long way to and, and back from uh, Australia. And, um, you know, as a front-ranking politician for most of his life, it, uh, he just didn't want to be out of the um, out of the struggle for that long. Well, let's turn back to another part of the historic British Empire, the United States. 
Churchill had various dealings with one of America's great families, the Roosevelt's. Would you please tell us a bit about his views and interactions with Theodore Roosevelt? Um, Theodore. Um, yes. Unfortunately, those weren't weren't very good. He didn't um, get. He only met Theodore Roosevelt uh, once when um, when Roosevelt was governor of New York, and um, and and they didn't get on. Theodore Teddy Roosevelt's um, daughter Alice Longworth was niece, perhaps Alice Longworth said his daughter. Yes, they were too alike. Sorry, <laughs> that was his daughter. Yes, yes, yeah. Said that the, the two men were too alike, and that was the reason <laughs> they didn't get on. Franklin Roosevelt, on the other hand, of course, um, he got on with extremely well. He liked him personally. Um, they were genuine friends. He uh, he saw in Franklin Roosevelt, who he rather hero-worshipped also because of the New Deal, which overlapped very much with Churchill's own Tory democracy concept, as a fellow aristocrat in his own land uh, who was um, uh, was just exactly the kind of leader that, that Churchill wanted to be. And, um, and, he, and he sent him his books and always wrote um, very flatteringly about him. And this was jolly lucky, of course, needless to say, when, when Britain desperately needed the help and support of uh, the United States during the Second World War. Could you talk a little bit about why Churchill did not attend Franklin Roosevelt's funeral in 1945? That remains a question to many people. Um, it shouldn't do really. It's an extremely dangerous, um, dangerous crossing the um, the Atlantic during the Second World War. Um, there were 463 operational U-boats in all, in April 1945 when um, when uh, Franklin Roosevelt died. And um, however important and and um, nice it would have been to have uh, attended the the church service. In fact, it was also the time of the collapse of, um, of Nazi Germany, and he had to be in London in order to oversee the final um, days. Uh, Hitler was only, uh, was only a few days away from committing suicide, after all. So it was n in no way intended in a disrespectful way. In fact, when uh, on, the, on the same day as the funeral in, in upstate New York, you also had... Um, one at St. Paul's Cathedral that uh, Winston Churchill cried all the way through. So um, it certainly wasn't um, uh, in any sense a criticism of, um, of the president who he loved. Andrew Roberts, you've been active in the public debate about Brexit, the 2016 referendum in which UK voters decided to depart the European Union. Is it possible to know what Churchill would have thought of this issue? Well, um, <laughs> Uh, Churchill's daughter, Mary Soames, told me never to um, assume that one knows what Papa would have said about anything after he died. And, of course, he, uh, he'd been dead for half a century before the Brexit um, referendum. I think it's important to remember, of course, that um, Churchill was a leader of the European movement. He never wanted, as he said, Gaul to fight Teuton. Ever again, he'd seen far too many of his friends in the First World War and Second World War dying as a result of Gaul fighting Houston. And um, so he wanted France and Germany to come together. But very carefully, when you read um, the, uh, the speeches that he made on this great issue, he never wanted Britain to be a member of it. He wanted Britain to be a supporter and an ally and a friend and so on. 
um, but always from the outside. And so I think um, if push came to shove and I was forced to uh, to ignore Churchill's daughter's recommendation, um, I would say that Winston Churchill would have been on the side of those of us who uh, want to keep um, Great Britain out of any kind of um, European superstate. Is the logic of Brexit, which could be summarized in part as decentralizing in this spirit of our age, is that also representative of a threat to the UK holding together just the decentralizing impulse, or is that entirely no, no, different? No, I, I think, if anything, it should be the opposite. Um, I think, if anything, the, um, the fact that the United Kingdom is now um, on its own and a sovereign and independent nation should be something that should be a, um, a force that brings us closer together and recognizing that we've got uh, much more in common with um, Northern Ireland and Scotland and Wales uh, with England than uh, things that separate us. Let's talk for a moment about strategy in today's world. We have the United States will cease to be at the lead of what some called a unipolar moment after the Cold War. We're seeing some signs of returning to regional blocks, regional hegemons. What do you think Churchill would have thought of this moment? And do you think he would have advocated a closer union among what he called the English-speaking peoples, such as the UK, the USA, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Singapore, and so on? I think undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, that's the stance that he'd have taken, yes. Uh, he, he made so many speeches about the English-speaking peoples. He wrote a four-volume history of them, of course. It was he who coined the very phrase special relationship in his great Harvard speech in September 1943. Uh, he crossed the Atlantic, uh, visited America 16 times, and he was somebody who thought that it was a completely natural um, connection um, that the uh, that the British Empire should have with the American Republic and and later the British Commonwealth. He um, was somebody who loved Canada as well. Um, and all in all, it, it would be an absolute uh, natural sense that he would have that the United Kingdom, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and those other countries that you mentioned, which so many of them are. Um, have the same law and literature and and history and have shed blood together on battlefields and uh, and have a a common sense of what is decent and right and I think if we were closer um, and there are moves to try and bring um, bring us all closer together the English speaking peoples then we would have a real voice in the world uh, a world which otherwise I fear might be dominated by powers that are not committed to the same um, values of, uh, of democracy that we are. Andrew Roberts, let's turn to a few questions about your work in life. Over the course of four decades, your books have all included Churchill as a binding element. At what point did you determine that your career would be focused on this one extraordinary individual, that it was, in fact, your destiny? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's one way of putting it. Yes, I'm uh, not sure that's totally true. Can I? Can I? Um, I, I wrote in 2014 a, uh, a biography of Napoleon, 
um, who, although of course he did have the same sense of destiny as Churchill, same same uh, wide ambitions as, as Churchill, uh, and indeed was Churchill one of Churchill's heroes. Um, uh, he nonetheless, uh, obviously, is a very separate figure from uh, from uh, Churchill, um, and 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 there have been other others as well, but nonetheless. Um, I don't know. I've been fascinated by Churchill since I was six years old. Up to the age of about four or five, I was under the impression that my rather obese, cigar-smoking grandfather was Winston Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> and it came as a bit of a shock to me when I was, I suppose, about six, when I, I realised that they were two separate people. Um, <laughs> but no, he has fascinated me. The good thing, one of the, one of the fun things about being um, a Churchill biographer is that you're never bored. You know that if, if you're um, reading a speech of his, you can't go three pages without finding a joke or some aperçu or some, something that is riveting or makes you think, ah, I hadn't thought about that. What a beautiful way of putting it. And, um, and so it's always very, it's a, it's, you know, it's the easiest thing in the world, really, um, to, uh, to write books about Winston Churchill because he was just so interesting, so funny, um, these, uh, these terrible ups and downs in his, uh, in his career, these massive reversals of fortune, these blunders that we mentioned earlier, and the way he got out of them or got through them and learned from them. And it's just a, an endless, um, endless fascination for me. Many people revere Churchill as a touchstone for striving to craft character in action. Are there aspects of Churchill's approach to life that you look to to emulate yourself or that you've turned to in your own difficulties at times? <laughs> um, actually, funny enough, there are, there are a couple, and, and, <laughs> I, and I, I hesitate even to mention them because they must seem so banal compared to the greatness of Winston Churchill, but one of them <laughs> is that I, I take an afternoon nap every day <laughs> like Winston Churchill did. He, he slept for 45 minutes um, in the afternoon, which he found split up the day and allowed him to, to make two working days out of them. And so I get up very early in the morning and, um, and always have a nap after lunch, and it tends to, um, to do that for me as well. The other one, um, I suppose, is, uh, is just a, a true belief in hard work. Um, I am a, somebody who likes and enjoys what he does, and so actually working hard is is one of the great pleasures in life. And and this was something that Churchill made a lot of. He he always said, try to do something that um, that turns, turns work into play, and that's very much what um, being a historian is, as far as I'm concerned. Well, you're very prolific, and it's reported that you will write something like I can't believe I have this right, five thousand words a day when you're writing a book. Is that true? How do you do yeah, that? I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I start at 4.30 or so in the morning. Um, I, it's a wonderful time because you can work for a good five hours before anybody um, you know, uh, phones you or uh, tries to get in touch. Um, I then uh, work through. I, I have a very uh, light lunch for the period that I'm writing. I don't tend to um, drink alcohol, uh, which um, is... Uh, is something that is not terribly easy, especially at the beginning. But when when you get into it, mm. it uh, it means that you can work write five thousand words a day. I, as I say, I, I I'm just uh, 
a um, a bit of a machine, frankly. I wrap the cold towel around my head and 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 just get the words that are down onto the paper. Once they're there, of course, it's an entirely separate and different thing because you then have to revise them and cut them uh, and winnow it down to a, a readable length. But um, uh, but 5,000 words a day for 100 days is the way that I wrote this last book. Well, as a writer, well, let's turn one more question along those lines, if I might. What is your next book project? Can you reveal that? Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm... Um, uh, I'm working very hard on it at the moment. In fact, the, um, this monstrous uh, uh, shutdown, lockdown of ours um, has, um, has been very helpful with, for me with regard to actually um, doing the, uh, the necessary research that I, and the pre-archival research that I'm doing. Um, and it's a biography of King George III, going to be subtitled um, Last King of America. It's going to try and persuade you, Americans, that um, your last king was not the um, tyrant of the Declaration of Independence or the villain of Hamilton the Musical, but was in fact a, um, an enlightened figure. He was a Renaissance man. He was um, not, the, uh, not the, the monarch that you think he was at all. In fact, he was an extremely impressive and uh, rather lovable figure. No matter how good it is, we're not coming back. Just saying. But, um, I, I appreciate that. No, I mean, he was very, very unlucky, of course, to live in the same decade as giants like uh, like Washington and Jefferson and Adams and Monroe and Madison and Franklin and <laughs> all of these quite extraordinary figures. Um, that um, uh, that the, We were talking earlier, weren't we, about how the times bring forward the, um, the leader well, my God, did your revolution bring forward some truly extraordinary leaders who were able to run rings around uh, poor old George Indeed. And if, are there significant matters relating to history or statesmanship or leadership that you've changed your mind about over time? Golly, uh, that's a good question. I, I, think, um, I think the advent of Twitter over the last uh, 15 years or so has um, made everybody think a bit about uh, connections between the leaders and the led. Um, and uh, it makes me think occasionally that Winston Churchill would have actually been extremely good on Twitter. Um, many of his wittiest remarks and his brilliant abessu uh, can be fitted into 240 characters or fewer. There's a marvellous moment in the House of Commons when he shouted uh, at by a Labour MP who shouts rot. And Churchill immediately replied, I thank the Honourable Member for telling us what's in his mind. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of joke, I think, would do very well as a tweet, don't you? Indeed. Well, as we wrap up, are there books or creative works beyond your own that have been particularly influential on you that you might commend to others? Oh, so many. So many. And constantly, I mean, you, when you're when you're writing, you have to be reading, um, uh, not least just to keep your um, uh, your sort of literary skill in. It's um, it's very important when you're writing a book to read books that are well written, and um, so there are just so many, and some I come back to again and again. Um, the biography of King George V by Kenneth Rose is a, is a beautiful book. Talleyrand's Duff Cooper, I read again and again. I try and take down and um, and read some 
passages, not enough, I fear, of um, of Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire, uh, which I read in its entirety when I was at university, but haven't done since. But um, but when I'm about to write a book, I like to to take it down and just to allow some of those epigraphs to uh, that Augustan prose to roll around in my head a bit. <laughs> Claire Booth Luce famously instructed President Kennedy that everyone, even presidents, are ultimately encapsulated in a single sentence. What would you like your one sentence to be? <laughs> oh my God, did you really? What a thing to suddenly, uh, suddenly spring on me. I don't know. I'm afraid <laughs> that's the kind of thing an American can ask an Englishman, and an Englishman can only reply with something, um, uh, uh, something like. Um, he did his best. <laughs> well, that's a very good answer. Uh, Andrew Roberts, how can listeners best follow and connect with you in social media? Oh, well, I've got a... Um, uh, I, I, I'm on Twitter and, uh, and Facebook and all of those kind of things. Um, I, you're now going to ask me what my tweet, tweeting handle is, and I'm afraid I haven't got a <laughs> first clue. But um, nonetheless... I've also got a website, and I do know that, which is www.andrew-roberts.net. Well, Andrew Roberts, thank you very much. It's been an honor as well as a delight to have you with us. I much enjoyed it, Dave. Thank you. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Amid the current pandemic, some of Winston Churchill's lessons may be more apt than ever. This podcast opens with brief words from Theodore Roosevelt. Beginning with this episode, we'll close with a clip from Churchill inspiring his nation during a speech to his old school, Harrow, on October 29th, 1941. Again, thank you, and please rate us highly on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at James Strock and connect via our website, servetolead.org. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest our country has ever lived and we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.